Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to introduce Anamique Sika Sosa de Jong to the podcast. Anamique is Head of Portfolio at the IKEA Foundation, the independent charitable foundation that oversees IKEA's global philanthropy. First established in 1982 with the main goal of preventing child labour, the foundation's operations have expanded considerably so that today it administers an annual budget of 140 million euros. The foundation's efforts are primarily aimed at addressing the fundamental needs of children through funding holistic long-term programs in some of the world's poorest communities. Thank you very much, Anamique, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you very much as well. Thank you for having me. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about the work that you do and to get a sense of what the IKEA Foundation is doing at the moment, what you've been doing, how, how, how your activities have been changing and, and maybe to look to the future as well and see some of the priorities for the organization. Right, right. And what's your role there, Anamik? Uh, my role currently is that I'm, I'm leading the work that we do in humanitarian action. Um, that work that sees, um, there's a couple of pillars there. There's work that is concentrated around emergency relief, so really making sure that selected partners are able to move very quickly uh, in the time of a disaster. Part of that also is our longer-term uh, protected crisis support, so that's really where refugees are in a long-term situation where we're really looking to help them um, back into a position of self-reliance and an ability to care for themselves and for their families. Um, and I also is a big part that's focusing on what we would call sector strengthening, so really making grants that look to help humanitarian action become very effective and very efficient uh, in getting people into a sense of normalcy as such. And then um, the last bit, and, and that's something that we're hoping to do. I'm now, I'm not getting an echo. Is that okay? Or I'm not getting at my end, so don't worry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Shall I repeat what I wanted to? Just you can just start there, the last piece. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, And then there's a fourth area that uh, we're hoping to do much more in, which is looking at the uh, preparedness uh, side of it. So really helping to uh, mitigate uh, disasters. Really trying to help communities and individuals be better prepared for disasters. And that's an area that is very much aligned to a climate change, climate change goal that we as a foundation have set, up or set for ourselves. So that really is an overarching theme that, uh, that we hope to bring into all of the grants and all of the partners that we work with much stronger. Great, great. Now, what, what, can you give me an indication or a rough idea of the scale of your activities, Anamique? 
focus, for instance, we're currently working with about 16 or 17. Um, we uh, work on longer-term programs, uh, so usually also in the humanitarian space, usually it's about an average of three years, um, if not five years. Um, grants average a couple of million, but uh, last year overall for the foundation, we were able to grant around 140 million euro, um, of which this portfolio is about um, 40 million euro uh, envelope. Right, right. And where does it fit in with the other activities? Because I, I know IKEA has an active CSR and has made uh, substantial commitments in terms of renewable energy. Um, you mentioned that this is 40 out of 140. Can you try and just give me a brief overview of the of the different parts of the, the pie, as it were? It's a very large pie, actually. Um, you um, are absolutely right that there is a large focus from the company side on being very sustainable. So they have a large sustainability team. When it comes to legal structures, it's good to understand that we are absolutely separate from the company as such. We are our own um, identity, we are our own legal structure, and it means that we have our own objectives and strategy that we drive. Um, so in that sense, we're actually not really as a, you know, you can't really see us as a CSR department of IKEA um, yes. anymore. Yes, yeah. It was part of uh, the, the, you know, the trying to prevent child labor at the time that was almost definitely coming out of the CSR activity. but. Since it really became part of the foundation umbrella, it's really been its own foundation. Yes. So it's actually, you know, the company does a lot on, on protecting human rights and really making sure that the supply chain is as ethical and sustainable as possible. Um, that department is, 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 is large and is far larger than, than um, we will ever be. And that's also how we see ourselves. We see ourselves as complementary to what the business does. In a, in a way, it allows us to go where the business cannot really go. I mean, they work directly with people in stores, people in trading, and people in the larger supply chain. And that means that they can reach into the communities directly affected by their presence as a company there. Um, for the foundation, though, we, we're then able to go where there's no business presence as such. So that really explains also why we're focusing a little bit more on countries uh, like Uganda, Rwanda, and um, and uh, and Kenya, for instance, whereas the business you'll see concentrated a little bit more around the the areas that they're in. Um, so that really is is a is, you know we're really complementary to each other. There are common themes, so there's themes that we try to align on. Um, water is is a is a is a, is a theme. Renewable energy, uh, as you mentioned, is a big theme actually. Um, children is another theme, uh, and. Increasingly, also job creation and employment is, is an overarching theme between the two of us. Great, great. And how is that integrated? How does the integration happen? It first comes down to, uh, to communication, I suppose. I mean, because we're two separate entities. Uh, we view collaborating with IKEA business like we do um, collaborating with any other entity. And we really need to make sure that... Um, uh, we have contact persons within both sides that we can uh, align on and they can help drive and really push the conversation along. Uh, a good example of that actually is what's happening currently in Jordan where you have IKEA's Next Generation program. So that's, that's, a, that's a, yeah, a unit within the sustainability department that looks to incubate social enterprises particularly geared towards women. So that actually allows, us to, to, allows them to go into markets a little less familiar to them. Um, and they've, they've started to set up a supply chain in Jordan uh, geared towards refugee women, uh, also benefiting the host community. And then we as a foundation, uh, of course, already also were in Jordan with, uh, for instance, investments in the solar farm and in an accelerated learning program for children. 
But we then uh, are currently looking to um, complement what they're doing in that supply chain with additional skill building, uh, but also by trying to include other private sector because as a separate foundation, we really need to make sure it goes beyond just IKEA. Um, so that is then a role for us to play, uh, that they really are, are good at what they're doing and they do what they do best, you know, really is trying to create the jobs that they need for the supply chain that they're, that, that they're good in. Um, and that we then as a foundation, first of all, really anchor what they're doing and try to then leverage as many other private sector groups as possible and really help liaise with the government, help liaise with UNHR, help liaise with everybody who um, is trying to um, look for long-term solutions for people in displacement in Jordan, for instance. Great. Now, I, I'd like to touch, come back to that, uh, this question of uh, uh, private sector funding uh, in humanitarian areas, which I think is very interesting. Uh, just before that, a couple of other uh, points, if I might. Uh, how are you funded? We're funded directly out of um, the foundation. There's, there's, there's three foundations sitting next to each other. Um, there's one that holds uh, the business. There's another one that holds the asset management, and then there's us. We're the philanthropic arm of the foundation that holds the business, and that profit coming out of that, we, we get allocated some of the funding based on our strategy and our own objectives. Right. It comes directly from IKEA, basically. There's no public giving or anything like that. Right, right. And do organizations approach you? Do you approach them? How does that work? Trying to look for those organizations that um, 
can really, yeah, can really help drive how we do things slightly differently and really instill that 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 um, that impact-driven, almost business-like thinking in there. Um, so there's a lot that comes out of our own team, and our CEO and our head of programs uh, are very active members in, in finding those partners as well, and it involves a lot of strategic thinking in that sense, but there's, um, there's a lot of active engagement in that sense. Right, right. Now, just finally on, on the, the question of scale, you mentioned 40 million approximately uh, looking at the children's uh, part of the foundation. What other activities does the foundation do? Um, so just to clarify that the 40 million is for the humanitarian portfolio yes. uh, as such. The 140 million is a foundation-wide. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you know, to, to explain it, I suppose, is that children are our ultimate beneficiaries. So anything that we do should put children in a better position, be it through investments that we do through our Innovations for Healthy Homes portfolio, where we're looking to unlock financial mechanisms for people in poorer areas to access uh, finance for their housing, finance for the utilities, which are predominantly in renewable energy um, sources, um, and, and, you know, and together with that, really trying to create that awareness of consumers about what products actually suit their needs best. Um, with the aim that children actually grow up in a very healthy home. Then there's the work that builds on what IKEA Business has started, which is really about preventing children from being exploited. So in the space to be a child work really looks at sort of 0 to 12, 14 years of age where children are safe, they're nurtured, they're loved, uh, and really cared for in, in school, in the communities, and, and, and at home. Um, so that looks a lot at early childhood development to quality education, for instance. Um, and then when a child grows up to become an adolescent, our Building Self-Reliance portfolio really looks at giving younger people the opportunity to create themselves a future home. So really looking for ways for particularly women and girls to find pros prosperous areas in which they can find a livelihood. So that really looks at what are the higher education modules that will help um, younger people get the skills, life skills, as well as, as professional skills that they need to develop it for themselves is coupled with also again focusing on women and girls and getting giving them the choice of when to marry, when to have their first child. Um, and that and that is sort of, you know, together then with the humanitarian portfolio where we're trying to put children into a safe home as soon as we can after a disaster happens and, and predominantly looking more and more at how do we actually prevent a disaster from happening and, and keeping them in the home um, if we can. Uh, that really is sort of the overall aim of the foundation, but the different entry points with which a grant can be done could be at household level, could be at system level, could be at private sector level, but it ultimately should lead to children having uh, a healthy and, and, and proper, uh, not proper, but healthy and, and, uh, and uh, uh, opportunist life for them to, to, to create for themselves. Great, great. Now, um, the, the big changes going on in the world of uh, humanitarian aid, particularly on the financing side of it, I think, uh, sounds like there's, uh, I mean, you, you've been a pioneer in, in uh, as a private sector funder, uh, partnering with, you know, as you say, organizations like UNICEF and things uh, like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the climate of change there and uh, how you see things? I mean, people do talk about a crisis, funding crisis, and uh, I know that uh, organizations like the World Bank and organizations, you know, the UN, UNICEF and so forth, are uh, increasingly interested in, in private sector involvement. Um, I just want, wanted to get a little bit of how you see the lay of the land. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting 
dialogue and uh, one that we actually been able to, to follow very closely considering how young we actually are and just to say before um, sharing a little bit more thoughts when we started uh, for instance the situation in Syria wasn't at the level it was now so we've really we've really written our strategy as the Syria crisis for instance unfolded and, and through that I think a lot has come up that's shown that um, we need a we need to find new sources of funding, but also different ways of spending the funding. And I think that's where the interest in the debate comes from. When you talk about you know a gap in funding, of course, it's constantly being referred to as you know if you look at the large emergency appeals that the big organizations uh, roll roll out, those appeals keep growing in volume, uh, and so you always have an increasing gap. But I think what is more or what is very interesting to talk about is not necessarily maybe even the gap in funding, but also how the funding is actually spent. And I think that's where um, organizations like ours can play uh, somewhat of a role where, you know, you're not only introducing a new source of funding. Of course, private philanthropy has, there's, there's, a, there's a considerable amount of wealth in there, but it's also about how do you use that and, and what kind of dialogue do you have with your partner. And it goes back a little bit to, um, to what I was saying earlier about the kind of partnerships that, that you would look for. I mean, if you... Um, if you're looking for introducing a new way of, of, of doing it, you're going to have to work with the best place actors. And that may may not be the ones that you have traditionally worked with on a, on a certain topic. And I think just as a general, um, at least the way we're approaching it, and that's absolutely our strategy, I mean, there's a lot of focus from our end on that self-reliance bit of, uh, of people in who are in long-term situations where Ideally, if you can do that, if you can really help those who are able and willing to, con well, they're all willing actually, but who are able, who are in a position to, you know, to take the step into employment or to be their own entrepreneur. And of course, a lot of that is already happening. So it's also about finding finding ways to make the informal economies much more formal, and that you can give more protection. You can talk about fair wage. You can talk about opening trade routes and supply chains in that sense. Um, that you're actually finding a way for them then to get less. Um, sort of decrease the dependency that they might still have, or at least the benefit they might still are entitled to, to humanitarian aid. And that will also release some of the gap of funding, or will free up funding that you would need to help stabilize other groups of people. Uh, because at the same time, we know that we're not actually reaching all of the people in need, and those who fall through the cracks are often the most vulnerable already. And so we need to find ways of reaching those people. Um, whilst we help those who are already stabilized and are in an opportunity to, yeah, to, for instance, really have a formal business in place and start employing people, that they then get access to finance, they get access to uh, business management, they get access to the right people for the job. So it means investing in job creation, it means investing in the right kind of skills, it's understanding the markets uh, really well. And so that's, that's, I think that's a very interesting part when you talk about the gap in funding. It's not necessarily about just attracting more funding, but it is also about how do we use every single uh, euro or dollar that gets attributed to, and um, how can we actually help people cycle off of that dependency? Because there's a lot of people currently on humanitarian aid that could abs could absolutely be in a position to take care of themselves if there's the right policy in place, if there's the right legal framework um, that you know, and it really helps protect them as well and really keeps them out of, for instance, dirty jobs and really get them onto a track for safe and sustainable jobs. Um, so that's also how we how we see it, and I think a foundation like ours can play a role in that. That not only could we fund those things that may not be seen as um, 
there may not be an opportunity for either traditional donors or government donors or for traditional organizations to, to try. Uh, you know, we can really also give seed funding to startable organizations. We could support for-profit. We could uh, support uh, think tanks and research. I mean, you could, you could really make it anything you want. You know, we don't have any of those restrictions on us as, as a funder. Um, and, that, and that then hopefully drives how we, it, it should drive two things. It drives how funding is being used, but it also drives collaboration and partnership in a different, and it really should also be that conversation. How do we actually really start linking all of those different um, organizations and, and partners much better together? Because there's great organizations and government institutions out there who probably know really well how to help people into jobs and how to, uh, well, really implement the long-term strategies that you need at country level. And as long as we're, um, as long as, you know, humanitarian crises are seen as the, you know, almost the, um, the ownership of humanitarian agencies, uh, and they should deal with it, it's going to be difficult to bridge that. So I think it's not only that humanitarian agencies start interfacing much better with those who have been doing long-term planning for a long time, but that those who do long-term planning um, and, you know, more developmental agendas that they also start reaching out and say, we can actually include this group of displaced people um, into our, our plans and into our, our way of working much better. Um, so I think that, that helps address some of the conversations that we're seeing about the gap of funding. Um, also knowing that, you know, even if you free up all the wealth in private sector groups, um, it may still not be enough because if we keep doing what we're doing and, and making it a care maintenance model, um, we're not going to have enough available considering that more and more people will probably move. So uh, yes. that's, that's also how we see it, and that's how we approach our funding strategy as well. Right. Uh, a, a lot of uh, covered a lot of ground there, Anamik. Um, I, I, I'm interested in you talked about the collaboration and partnership. I'd like to talk in a moment about some of the work that you are doing, because it does seem to be uh, quite uh, pioneering and uh, just see what the insights you have on on that. Um, th th I, I'm interested in you talking about collaboration and partnering. Uh, to how important is that? Because um, you have these organizations are they, that, that, that have been there for a long time and are doing uh, great work in many ways. To what extent have they uh, are there models of collaboration or partnership? Or to what extent is is increased partnership collaboration listening to the people that you're working with in a more hands on approach important? that has 
you know, the logistics capacity or that has the right people in place or whatever it is, but we see ourselves doing that more and more. Um, but for, it does go back to uh, that interfacing bit, and I think that's where we need organizations, private sector, government, uh, data, research, uh, to come together much more in a, not in a competitive environment. I mean, this is about human beings, and we need to use everybody's function and purpose to its best form. Um, and that is, I think this is where we still need to do learning, and, and this is where we also still learn how to do that as, or how to help facilitate some of these conversations as a, as a funder. Um, but it is about that interface with the long-term strategies and how do you engage with those who've been in an area very long or, you know, with government in a way that you can, you know, really talk about the policy environment and start addressing it from a national development plan rather than a humanitarian um, emergency plan. Um, and so for us, that's increasingly important. And the way that it shows it is that uh, we're also constantly learning. I mean, we're, we're definitely, we definitely have made our mistakes. We definitely have holes, and we definitely have couldn't done things better here and there. But we're constantly trying to learn from that. Is that you know, it already starts with before making a grant, um, making sure that those who are also working in the same area put them around the table. How can they make sure that they um, uh, can leverage what the other one is doing? And sometimes it means that there's the odd one in at the table. So an organization that you may not find in a humanitarian cluster that's there and that will have something um, to contribute that's very meaningful but maybe less obvious in that sense. So um, absolutely, I think for us, also going back to the gap in funding, for us to all make sure that our funding that we do spend is used in the most impactful way, in the most efficient way, we're going to have to invest time and, and, and energy into building those networks, into leveraging those things that are organically growing, I think, as well, because that's the other part. You can't necessarily force um, organizations to work together, but it needs to have, you know, the, needs, the right incentives need to be in place, and it needs to be in alignment of values as well. So it is very important to look for those organizations and those partners and those for-profit groups and governments that all have the same, uh, the same desire to help people, in this case, the people in displacement to go into, for instance, a self-reliance route or something like that. So um, absolutely, we need to, um, as a funder, that's absolutely where a lot of our attention goes to, trying to facilitate that and um, hopefully being able to do that much more as we're learning more about country-specific um, policies and, and organizations and networks as well. Great. Great. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing maybe in Uganda or um, I, I'm interested in the, this question of uh, helping uh, refugees, I suppose, in, in refugees camps. And, and there are many uh, challenges there, I know, and uh, this tension between what are often set up, uh, well, purportedly to be, you know, short term uh, refugee camps and so forth, but actually are there for very, very long periods of time and aren't necessarily structured and resourced and, you know, built with that in mind. And, and there are challenges there with host governments, you know, not, you know, not, not particularly keen to, to think about these and, the, you know, being there in the longer term. Um, but also this question of self-sufficiency and uh, what have you been doing and how, how has that been going? Yeah, it's absolutely um, something that's constantly at the um, centerpiece of our thinking. Um, by, as you said, I mean, a, a camp is, should be the last resort um, and it's become the norm. And that's, that's, that's what we need to reverse as well. Um, and it goes back exactly to that self-reliance bit. If we can support 
both the national government and the, 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 the directly affected communities and the displaced populations into opportunities of economic growth, of development in education and in health, um, it becomes much more of a conversation around you know, um, very localized developmental um, growth for that particular community or that region. And that's exactly the kind of conversation that, that's very much interest of interest to us. Um, because exactly by placing people in a, in, a, in a confinement, you, of course, don't do much to, um, or it's very difficult then to make sure that there's a good integration with the host community. Uh, and if you consider that a lot of the humanitarian support, I mean, what, what has happened, and it's not always the case, but you've had instances where health rates, for instance, are better in humanitarian or in, the, sorry, in refugee camps and not necessarily in the host community. And then clearly what we've, you know, we as the international community have then failed to see is how do we actually then give the same level of support to the host community? Um, just because they're not a refugee doesn't mean that they also need that kind of support. So it, it really needs to, it goes back to that whole idea that you want to help um, the national government or um, those agencies responding to the crisis to almost make it a needs-based approach rather than a, a category or a label-based approach and really say, what does this area need when, when they're confronted with a large influx of people who are fleeing from either a natural disaster or a man-made conflict? I mean, what do we actually need to help this community or this region um, with when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to uh, education facility, even when it comes to, you know, individual level needs? Um, and so it... It's exactly that, and I think what you what you increasingly see is that um, I'm just wondering whether I should talk about Uganda a little bit because Uganda for us is a very interesting country. We in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we are in Kenya, Ethiopia, Uganda, Rwanda with our humanitarian work uh, based on the fact that there are uh, historical numbers of, of you know high numbers of refugees there. Uganda, we have a program running with a uh, partner Oxfam who helps to, um, it actually speaks to the localization debate a little bit where, or not a little bit, a lot actually, where they're um, increasingly looking to build the capacity of local and national humanitarian actors to respond to crises. It's a program that happens in both Uganda and Bangladesh, and both for, both on the same premise, but for different reasons, where Bangladesh, they're gearing up towards disasters more out of natural causes, whereas in Uganda, it's more on man-made conflict. Um, reactions. And so there's, uh, it's an interesting way because for Oxfam it also means what does it actually do to their policies and, and their internal way of working to truly put the, the power and ability of the national local humanitarian actor to respond and to really be able to respond. So it involves technical expertise, but it also then involves uh, some direct funding for that organization that they can then use to respond to that crisis. And of course, Uganda um, is currently seeing more people coming in, so they've already been able to utilize some of that learning in, in northern Uganda, particularly uh, as more people were coming in. Um, but Uganda, for us going forward, is, is most definitely a country where we're going to hopefully see uh, coming together of several of our new grants, uh, not without being able to speak about it too much, but there's a couple of things currently in our pipeline that hopefully will bring together, uh, so leveraging the work that we do on building capacity of local actors, but then also experimenting much more with uh, a direct cash program. Uh, it is about also engaging with financial institutions and banks potentially in the country to really uh, bring access to finance to refugees uh, from that infrastructural level. Um, and, you know, there's um, another research that's being undertaken that um, it really is centered around the economy of a refugee 
and that really looks at um, trying to formalize the fact that refugees are economic beings and, and really getting, again, getting them linked to the, the, the formal market in that sense and really leveraging what's already happening. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, actually. Right. What are your plans there? What do you, I mean, clearly uh, so much is depends on, uh, as you say, the local and the national. Um, and obviously you've made good ground there. Um, what, what are your aspirations in, in Uganda and elsewhere? I mean, this is, these are, seem to be relatively new models. I don't know whether uh, there are many other uh, examples of this kind of thing and, and how uh, promising they are. But uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. happening in Uganda. So um, first to say that I guess for all of our grants, we're going to be looking for those things that are um, really trying to help, <laughs> to your point, address the gaps in funding. So re what really are the new sources of funding and how do we actually use them much more wisely, much more efficiently, again, with that particular focus on bringing people into a position of self-reliance. So whether that's in Uganda or Jordan or Kenya, uh, I don't think that as a premise is going to change. What will be of influence is, of course, what the governments will allow and, and, and what's already there and what we can uh, what we can build on. So in Uganda, you actually have a, a pretty enabling environment for refugees. I mean, there's the right to work. So that already allows you to start investing in, in um, the kinds of skills that the market would demand and to really start understanding what the labor market uh, in that country is. Um, so part of that, again, is that capacity building of local entities. It is about access to finance. But it's, and it is then also about job creation and then education links to that. So because we also focus a lot on, on tertiary education options that then links to or that really gets people into a livelihood. And I think what, what um, you'll find that we're trying to do increasingly across all of the different countries is, again, linked to that uh, climate change goal that we have as a foundation. Um, apart from trying to understand the labor market as it currently is or that you might still can, you know, that might still be stimulated somehow, we're also trying to look for the future labor markets in that sense. So when you think about the expertise necessary in renewable energy or water management for some of the areas or some of the countries and in, in the country's areas where you are going to be faced with, um, with more climate change challenges, we're going to want to invest in, in those you know, that you're really going to have a cohort of people who have the knowledge and skills to help the country get future-proof in that sense. Uh, Jordan, in, a, in that way, is also a good example where, you know, we had the investment in the solar farm really geared towards not only helping UNHR to, uh, and, and the government of Jordan to, to manage the energy needs that was placed in the country that, you know, that came with the influx of refugees, but it's most definitely with the, the future in mind where you know that Jordan is going to phase an energy um, and, and it's already there, and it's, it's very immediate. So how do we already make the investments now that help countries be very future-proof? And that also means then linking that to the future job opportunities as necessary. So that's just one example where uh, hopefully per country we're going to be able to do much more. Um, what that exactly looks like, I'm, I'm, I can't say in, in actual, like I can't really name you the partners or the kind of grants that we would make, but I think that's, that's definitely where um, we're going to go to, and it really speaks towards our wish to, um, or our direction, our strategic direction, particularly in this portfolio, on creating jobs that are that are safe, that are sustainable, and that really help the country thrive. And whether that's, you know, uh, 
whether that's local uh, people in combination with refugee people, I mean, it's, it's about the national capacity being in place uh, to be able to respond to the climate change challenges, because we're going to see more human migration, we're going to see more human movement if we don't start making investments in that kind of infrastructural um, capacity as well. Um, so yes. that's going forward uh, definitely where our, our, our focus is going to be. Uh, and it's very linked to the work that my colleagues do. And I, I mean, because for us in the displacement portfolio, it is a lot around jo- you know, job creation and self-reliance for people in displacement. But the whole idea around um, investing in a climate smart agriculture, uh, in the infrastructure to reduce the pressure on the climate, but also trying to get the skills uh, in place for people to be able to maintain and think through all of the next technologies that we need for all of that, is very much overlap with... Um, with my colleagues and overlap in a positive way because we're all constantly trying to see how the investments that are, for instance, coming out of the Innovations for Healthy Homes portfolio that looks particularly at renewable energy skills and expertise as well, how does that then, how that can be applied in displacement situations and, uh, you know, the, the work that my colleague does on climate smart agriculture, how can you bring those lessons and learnings back into a displacement situation or even in a preparedness situation where you're trying to prevent people from having to suffer a disaster or to, to actually have to migrate because of a disaster happening. So um, that, that's, that's where the foundation is going to go. Um, we're always doing it, but that's probably where we're going to focus on a lot more. It's really about trying to get the, the climate uh, future-proof for the next generation. Right, covered a lot of ground there, very interesting material. Are you optimistic that other funding cha- is, is coming on, on board generally? You talk about the funding gap, whereas the funding c- coming, it, it necessitates, you say, it's not just new actors, but new ways of, of, of looking at funding and, and, and thinking about structuring this. But w- what about sources of funding? What about new, uh, new money coming? And, and uh, are you seeing progress? Do you th- are you optimistic? as to how it's being done, and I know from IKEA side as well, they're 
they're asked to speak about how their sustainability is so much integrated into their business. And I think the fact that um, it's, it's, you know, it's on the premise of the values and culture that Comfort himself has set out um, is, is a great way of doing of doing your business in that sense. And again, because we're so complementary to that, we're able to just leverage that and really use the brand name in that sense and, 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 and keep striving for more uh, governments, more private sector, more organizations to really keep to uh, to understand their own value set. Why do you do what you do? What is your background? What is your what is your value set? And when is it okay to not keep to your values? It's probably never. It isn't. So how do you make sure that that how do you make sure you keep true to that kind of um, yeah this kind of modus operandi that you really keep true to to who you say you are and, ha- and make sure that that goes throughout your organization and throughout your affiliated uh, companies. Um, and so I think because we see that conversation happening much more, we see many others stepping in, there's great stuff happening by other uh, organizations and, and governments and, and again, and also a lot of private sector groups who are doing fabulous stuff and leveraging their own knowledge on, for instance, financial, institu- or financial uh, mechanisms and, and tools or on technology. I mean, the, the ICT sector is, is great at trying to opening up um, their knowledge and expertise. So it's happening, but I think, again, it does need to come back to uh, a sinking in of those things coming up and that funding becoming available with those who respond to crises, also in long-term situations, to really start seeing how that interface works and really starting to find a way where everybody has their 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 fits, you know, their best fit, their their form and function really fitted into what's best for that person and really trying to make it a needs-based approach and, and hopefully we can get them to a situation where more governments become more willing to um, support people in displacing opportunities with not just the right to work but actually the right to have a decent and safe job and a sustainable job and, and all of that. Right, right. Very interesting. Now, you touched on the relationship between uh, the foundation and IKEA. This is a more uh, difficult question, perhaps, about funding. No, there has been articles in the media before, uh, some time ago, about IKEA's ownership structure, location, you know, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, non-profit status. I'm just wondering, is there a tension between questions like that, the ownership structure and the firm's uh, and, and, and the foundation's socially conscious work? I would have to, if you want an answer to that, I'll probably have to ask my colleague to respond to that one, if that's okay. Okay, okay. So then look, just looking to the future, uh, Anamik, uh, what would you say are the goals of the foundation for the next three to five years? What we hope to do in the next three to five years is um, keep, I suppose, on the one hand, really keep pushing on or keep building on the work that we have been doing. I think there's great stuff that, um, that we have been able to fund. We have great partnerships in place, so constantly trying to find the, the, you know, the best place things for us to do with those existing partners. Uh, but then at the same time, really contribute to the climate change goals that we set for ourselves, that is um, really looking to help communities and individuals be very resilient and prepared for, uh, for disasters. And in all of that, we're really trying to keep leading together with the company in that sense, to keep leading the way on um, on um, providing, as, as the vision is, providing a better everyday life for the many people and um, increasingly for my portfolio, that means hopefully in the next three to five years, we have got a lot more models in place that really show 
meaningful, successful models that really show how to how to support people into an opportunity to be self-reliant. Great. Well, I wish you the very best of success with that, Anamika, and thank you so much for taking the time today to share all the great work you're doing uh, for the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.